Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture and organised by Architects for the Space with the assistance of Rob Fain, the talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony, and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live, and like the talks themselves, with no frills and little or no editing, to bring you the arguments of the evening, direct and unfiltered. Thanks, Hugh. Um, So this event tonight, um, I can't remember if you were... I was busy getting a Negroni, so I might have missed this bit, but tonight's event is a partnership with the 20th Century Society. Um, uh, they came to us with this idea, and we worked on it together, and, you know, we just we debated quite fiercely, mods versus trads, mods or trads, mods and trads, um, you know, and I think, I think we wanted to talk about that in the room tonight, like, um, is there this kind of, is there a opposition between styles or does, can everything happily coexist? Um, sometimes online you see uh, some fights breaking out or some animosity. Is that, is that the preserve of the online community? Was it, was it non-existent before or was there something to it? How old is this debate? There are lots of things we can talk about. Um, as Hugh said, I'm co-chair and Catherine Croft from the 20th Century Society is also co-chair. Um, we've got five uh, uh, amazing uh, speakers tonight, so I'll just try and get them, you're quite a dense crowd, so I'll just try and get them to wave. So we've got Kath Slesser over here, Selassie Satife over here, uh, we've got uh, David Cohn, I'm just going in all of the room, David Cohn, uh, Robert Adam, and Nick Zangwell. So we'll, we'll be going to the uh, different speakers each in turn. We'll be getting them to hopefully bounce off one another. And then, as Hugh said, if you have a burning desire to say something, it, it can be a comment. It doesn't have to be a question. That's the, that's the vibe of the evening. So um, Catherine and I are going to sort of take turns at coming to different people. So I'm, I'm, so I'm going to kick off and go to um, Kath Slesser, and I need to give her a microphone. If, people, if everyone could pass that backwards. And so, Kath, what's, in the words of the Open City podcast, what's this all about, this, this mods or chads? Is it, is it a fight or is it, um, is it a fiction? Well, we're on the beaches with bicycle chains knocking seven bells out of each other. Um, well, or at least that's what, you know, certain people in the culture wars would like to think we're doing. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I'm president of the 20th Century Society. Catherine is the director. She does all the heavy lifting. I do the smiling and waving. Um, But I'm also on C20's casework committee and been that for a couple of years now. And the things that come across, you know, come across our bows are very diverse. They can, we were founded in, we we weren't founded in 1914. We consider architecture from 1914. So that, as you can imagine, uh, is not just, you know, hideous, concrete stained dystopias, it's a very broad range of things, uh, from sort of 30s neoclassicism uh, up to POMO, uh, because POMO is now starting to come under our our remit. So we're kind of batting for POMO, which is slightly incredible. Um, So yes, it's 
it's it's not as polarized as I think people would like to think it is. Um, but I mean, there's still uh, a sense of modern architect, modernist architecture from the sort of 50s and 60s and 70s as being kind of beyond the pale somehow, and that has a lot. That has a lot to do with not just uh, architect, you know, public sentiment and changing fashions, but you know, how it's seen by people in government, um, which we might get onto later. Uh, so yes, it's when I was at. I studied architecture when I was at architecture school. I was a mod um, because of the mod revival in the early 80s, and I was, you know, doing the mod thing. And there were also young fogies, young fogies who were sort of clad in acreages of tweed and having a lovely time. Uh, so it's a thing that's kind of gone through the sort of 20th century. It's not just, you know, it seems to kind of recur. Uh, and maybe it's helpful, and maybe it's not. And we will, you know, find out in the course of the evening. Cool. And can we come to you now, Robert? <laughs> um, you're getting a microphone any second now. Um, I guess what I want to say to you really is, is it and or or versus? And do you see yourself firmly in one camp or the other? Um, um, and are you trad or pomo? Or, you know, which, where are you comfortable? Well, how long have you got? Um, uh, <laughs> architecture school uh, in 1972, 73, they tried to kick me out because basically, Modernism was what you had to do. There was no question. There was no, no issue. But that aside, it, it, uh, broadly speaking, we're all traditional and we're all modern. Um, uh, as regarding modern, be careful what you say by modern. Modernism and modern are not the same thing. Um, I woke up this morning and I was in the 21st century. I couldn't avoid it. Actually, there was nothing I could do. I looked out the window and there weren't any horses and carts around. So everything I did was a modern thing. Every thought I had was a modern thought. Every client I had was a modern client. So modernity is an unavoidable state of being. Now, you can make it into something else if you like. You can use it as a code word for something else. But in the end, I belong to 21st century. I'm doing 21st century stuff. There's quite a lot of it about. Any future historian, I was cautious about future historians, will look back and see this is a part of what was being done and therefore was a reflection of modern society. Unavoidable state of being. And we're also all traditional. We have to understand what traditional really is. Um, uh, and again, I'll try and be brief about this, but um, traditions are, actually the legal definition of a tradition is something that gets passed through three generations. Well, modernism certainly there. Um, and um, it's, uh, uh, you can identify uh, the, the third generation on uh, for, for what it is. Of course, it does depend on the institution. It depends what it is. It's not generations as in 25 years or which, no, 35 years from uh, having children and so on. Uh, a school can actually have a, a, a generation can be four or five years. But nonetheless, it's, 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 all, it's three generations. So we're actually all traditional in that sense. But traditions are the way that people identify themselves. I mean, I'm speaking English, which is one of the great you know, traditions. That's how I identify myself as being English. Um, and I'm wearing a form of clothing, which identifies me in, as Tweedy. Um, <laughs> and also, but, but these are all traditions. They, they, have, they, they belong in history. And it's the way society identifies. So, so to whom does the tradition belong? The modernist tradition belongs to the architectural profession and, their, uh, and um, 
uh, their um, uh, running dogs, um, or um, whatever you want to call them. Uh, they, but they belong to, the, to those professions. Uh, traditional architecture, broadly speaking, and there's plenty of surveys that demonstrate this, is how uh, many, I use the word ordinary very carefully, uh, but many ordinary people uh, identify um, where they are and what is home, and so on and so on. So if we're, if we're all traditional, it's to, who, to whom does our tradition belong? So we're all modern and we're all traditional. Um, so um, we, can, we can take it from there. My final thing is, uh, just to show my credentials, I spent 12 years um, as an RIBA uh, awards judge and Kate McIntosh tried to remove me um, because um, she thought I might be favorable to postmodernism. So we always try and fix it. Uh, Paul Finch got hold of this and wrote an editorial and saying this is absolutely scandalous. Um, people should have, they should have a, a wide view of these things and so I got back the next week. Um, but in that time I gave a lot of awards to modernist buildings because I believe that what I liked was not the point. Things could be good whether I liked them or not. So lastly, I'll come to you next. Um, Robert there was talking about um, identity. Um, do, you, do you identify as a, as a moderate trad? Um, I was really intrigued by a lot of what you were saying, Robert. Um, I think I don't identify as either a mod or a trad. I think there is place for both of them, so I'm not a either or or versus. Um, I think what you say about um, identity and how we identify what is traditional and what is modern is definitely about a state of being. What we class as modern now is only by virtue of the fact that we're living in this present time. And what we class as traditional, at the time that it was probably built, people of those times would have classed it as modern of their time. So I feel like this is a very, it's a conversation that is definitely based on a spectrum and about heritage and history and what remains to be spoken about in future and what doesn't for whatever reason. I think the definitions of style that we often attribute to traditional or what we as architects but also lay people attribute to traditional architecture or traditional styles of architecture isn't the same definition that or aren't the same definitions that we would apply to modern architecture because or modernist architecture or contemporary architecture because the I don't know the the definitions are just fundamentally different there's a lot of decoration, for example, if we get into the fine grain of it, there's a lot of def decoration in traditional architecture where there isn't as much decoration in modern architecture, but that's for different reasons. And if we, if those reasons are transcendent of, yeah, their time and place, I think we will be able to compare those two things a lot more closely than we typically do. Um, whether it becomes form and function discussions or societal shifts or economic, whatever is that tend to define these things. Um, I think it's all on a kind of large spectrum. The things that you'll be able to afford to deliver in, t in order to deliver traditional decorative architecture, you can't do that now because of the com economic climate and therefore what can you do now? And in the future, 50, 100, 20, 200 years, are they going to define 
architecture of the 21st century as modernist or traditional based on its decoration and style or based on economic situations or whatever. But yeah, ultimately I think it's a spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Just wanted to come back to you really quickly on that idea of affordability, because obviously in your role, you know, how much is that playing, how much is that impacting on style? Hugely. I mean, do you have, if we, I mean, if we try and talk about affordability, we'll be here till the cows come home. Um, but do we have room in our budgets and where we come into conversations of viability to discuss style? We don't, we just we don't have room for it. So that would determine what our architecture ends up looking and feeling like. Um, again, I can't speak to the economic situation of um, the past and people delivering architecture of that time because I haven't really spent enough time looking at it. But um, yeah, I think that plays a massive, massive role in what we end up seeing and experiencing as architecture. I was going to say, I think there's a real in, um, verbal issue around, a semantic issue around modern architecture versus contemporary architecture. Um, you know, what we are talking about really in terms of going forward is the, the architecture of today, but we still use the word modern architecture, which for many people means the architecture of the 1930s, the Isacom building, you know, historical style, and that maybe we need to be more... Um, um, you know, analytical about talking about the architecture of the past, you know, of that's mid-century modern brutalism, you know, looking to differentiate um, how we look to the past, talking about contemporary architecture, maybe that will allow us to, um, to be more analytical about what exactly it is that we're drawing on. I don't know whether that makes sense to you. Well, well uh, to move on to our yeah, we're going to, should we move on to David? Do you have a... I think bouncing off that, really, yeah. Okay. Um, so I've enjoyed listening to your um, what you've said, and it made me think that um, when I think about is contemporary architecture modern, I tend to think um, about is the building trying to communicate ideas that one associates with modernism. So, um, and I think that makes it a bit more, uh, you know, Political, potentially, and I think the same would apply to is contemporary architecture traditional? I would say it makes me think of broader cultural questions about architecture's place within cultural discourse that might include literature, art, and um, then it becomes more, I would say, contemporary architecture, where I see this discussion being relevant to current practice is maybe there's more of a sense that one can choose. Uh, and modernism is now maybe there's enough uh, history to it that it is no longer the predominant cultural context in which we're working. And if one says my project or make, if one makes a project appear modern, one is still, I think, trying to appeal to ideas of modernism and a certain type of ideas about progress and 
you know, I mean, the whole, there's a whole suite of ideas that one would associate with that um, project. And I think it's interesting today that one can kind of uh, make buildings that possibly borrow from many different projects or ideas. And that's why I imagine, uh, that's what I thought, you know, when, when you make this title, that that's what's at stake. Is, uh, is that legitimate? Um, I think there are lots of, I mean, I, I could argue for uh, a kind of eclectic attitude to um, architectural precedent. Uh, but I think there are arguments, um, there are you know, valid criticisms of that kind of approach. And those are the kind of, that's the kind of conversation I'm very curious about. Yeah. And I, I, to your point about um, uh, budgets, I think it is obviously very important. Um, but I would want to be very hopeful <laughs> that um, even with very modest means, one can make cultural references that are very potent in terms of what they you know, the ideas that they make one think of. And I think that's, that would be also something to kind of, for me, the, the debate, can we champion that, you know? Even if you have little means, it's, it's, it's a positive thing to try and make something that's culturally present and visible and communicates, yeah. There's, um, there's quite an amusing recurring social media meme on Twitter where people post a picture of a, often a cathedral or a temple and this uh, imaginary person says, I was walking around with my father who's a builder, so some people have heard this, I was walking around this building with my father who's a builder and I turned to him and said, why can't we, why can't we build these things today? And um, the, fa the imaginary father builder replies, we can't, we don't know how. Um, and I think there's lots of people that would argue Maybe we do know how, maybe there are different reasons um, about budget or style or purpose of why maybe we don't build those things now. So maybe it's more complex than that social media meme. Um, but uh, we, I wanted to come to uh, Nick. Um, uh, obviously, there's a fair amount about um, the sort of, I guess, the aesthetics and uh, maybe more theoretical side of things. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm a philosopher, so that means I don't is have that, to... Is that on? Is it on? Can you hear? So I'm a philosopher, which means I don't really have to know anything about what I'm talking about. So, so, I, guess, so but I, want to, I very much agree with uh, David on the, picking on the ideas of modernism, because I think they, are, they lie behind a lot of both practice and discussion, and so I, maybe I can have a go at picking out some of those subterranean ideas. Um, so people talked about, had these kind of discussions in the Renaissance time. Uh, a lot of parallel discussions were going on then among architects and theorists. And they tended to split themselves into Platonists and Aristotelians, believe it or not. So, which you might think that's a bit high Fluten, can you all hear? So, 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 but I think, that, you know, modernists are really a kind of Platonists in many ways, in the following sense, that, that they thought of the, there's, to understand a building and to make it, you've got to grasp something intellectually. 
right? So you have an intellectual grasp, you think of the, the time in which it's built, perhaps in, in a more modernist vein, and um, other ideas like that. And they were opposed to the Aristotelians, who thought that what's important is appearances, how the things look in a kind of, to an untrained, to, to someone who doesn't necessarily have to know about history and politics and culture and the materials and all that kind of thing. So, you know, this does echo a lot of um, discussions that you might have. Does it matter that this is a, um, a crappy facade that merely looks like this? No, you have to be true to the, the function of the building or true to the materials. That's very much a modernist idea, which is, you know, picking up on the coattails of uh, the Platonist view. So, so someone who thinks, uh, is that going, is that happening? No, I could stand up here. Hello, hello. Oh, it's happening. Okay. So if you think appearances are important, then you might think you might place more emphasis on things like shadows and reflections in your in your construction. Um, so I was recently in, um, in in Kyoto. I don't know if you there's a new a new station about ten years old, huge station in the middle, and it's got a beautiful sort of echoing of one one part of it by another. But one part is just a reflection, and it takes you a while to see that. It's so extraordinary. Um, so that's the kind of thing that a um, it's a mere appearance, which is the sort of thing scorned by modernists in many ways, because you've got a what matters is reality. This is Plato's view, how things really are. Um, so you, you might think, well, come on, you're over-egging it. You know, a building is a complex thing. We all know it's complex. Right, so there's a whole lot of bunch of things. You've got to keep the rain out. It's got to be safe. You've got to make these political messages, um, blah blah blah, as well as how it looks, the, the beauty of the thing. Well, I think I would say the following. That uh, here's an example. Um, I don't know if anyone's been to Esfahan, uh, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. There's a there's a mosque called the Friday Mosque. It's not the main one the main center um, with the, uh, the Shah Abbas made. But the Friday Mosque, there's two domes, right? There's two domes, and one of them is very, very elaborate and fancy and was hugely, hugely impressive. Um, but the guy was, the, the guy, I can't remember the name of the guy, was a real nasty guy that made it and killed a lot of people and was very corrupt, etc., etc., etc. The next guy that came along 30 years later put up a very small, austere dome, uh, more religious. So, uh, in many ways, and a very more, very, just less, less, it was smaller and austere. And it was really a sort of finger up to the first dome. Uh, so it had, a, it had a political content, and yet, this is my point, is it had that content in virtue of its appearance. So there's a, the appearance of the thing uh, can't be taken away. It's a crucial thing which unites all the other, all the other things which architecture does. There's also got to do this visual appearance thing. Um, uh, okay, so... Um, so illusion, so the illusion is the sort of thing that sort of the the uh, the thing the, you know the Las Vegas um, just fronts that uh, modernists typically object to. That's okay if you if you're in the opposite team, and I think that is something which is uh, to to come down on the 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 anti-modernist side in this respect. That is something which is fundamental, and it doesn't matter if it, if uh, whether or not it's true to. It's true to its time, it's true to the materials, if it, if it looks, it's the look that's important. 
Um, now, here's a, here's a parallel, um, which will also bring me back to being a bit more ecumenical. That's not the word. So, so I'm less oppositional between the two sides. Um, think about um, um, fonts uh, and calligraphy more generally, the, the art of calligraphy. So it, it changes. Of course things change, of course, and to some extent you've got to move with the times. And things change, there are different styles of writing, and you probably know you have a huge choice of fonts on your computer when, you, um, um, you, when you're writing stuff. And there's a whole art of uh, Islamic and Far Eastern calligraphy, um, which uh, is, it's all very different, and yet, there's something in that, and here I go classicist, there's something in all those different traditions which is the sense of proportion in design. And this is a classical idea, if you like, there's something that is fundamental. Um, that however, whichever tradition you're working in, there's still the way the, 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 the different elements fit with respect to each other, its form. Um, is, is crucial in all these different traditions. So here's, here's something which um, I'm sure you all think is important. So there are various different fonts, and you might think of the traditional versus modern in terms of uh, sans-serif or serif fonts. You know, you might think of one as corresponding to modernism. So Helvetica, um, I once saw a TV documentary. There was this revolutionary new, uh, revolutionary new uh, um, font in the 60s, I think it was mid 60s. 60s, someone invented it, and all the other sans-serif fonts uh, follow from that. Fine. But then we all need, and this is my basic point, kerning. Every tradition needs kerning. Do you know what kerning is? Uh, presumably you all know what kerning is, you, that your M isn't the same, uh, isn't just as big as the I. And if you, if you have fonts without kerning, it doesn't matter whether it's sans-serif or serif. If it's an older font style or a newer font style, you need this sense of proportion in design, which is something given to you visually, not intellectually. It's not about being true to your times or true to the materials. Uh, it's a question of visual proportion. And I think that's all really the, uh, the, the, the classicist is really um, valuing at root. And I think that's compatible. You know, if you look at the great modernist architectures, you look at, you look at um, um, Niemeyer and Bobardi and people like that, they're all, you know, you get this, you, in a sense, there's something classical about those people, which is may, maybe why I pick them out. Uh, but, but they've all got this uh, thing which, you can, you, which is appreciated in mere appearance, whether or not it's true to anything deeper. Who cares about that? Uh, let's just wallow in sensation and value that. That's enough. Greater chance to respond. Yes, uh, Robert's going to respond. Is that right, Catherine? Yeah, that would be great. Just one or two responses. First of all, um, what is style? Style is simply a combination of similar things that are recognizable. So then it's get bogged down in style. Secondly, decoration. Traditional architecture doesn't have to be decorated. Some of the best traditional architecture was Sweden in the 1920s. Um, that's probably about the most economic public housing ever produced, still used to this day. Um, so let's just let's, let's put those two to bed. Um, the third one is that all buildings um, transmit some piece of information. That's unavoidable. Um, now, how you interpret it and what it means to you, of course, depends on who you are. Um, so uh, if... Um, if you're trained to, to like modernism, which I was, and I don't dislike it at all, um, that, that sends me a message. It sends different messages to other people. Um, 
Thirdly, uh, I'd just like to put forward a particular theory uh, um, about, uh, about modernism. I mean, careful, contemporary is just another version of modern, by the way. Uh, in normal speak, contemporary just means things that happen around about the same time. Um, much as modern means, um, actually, in my book, which I hope you'll get to read, called Time for Architecture, um, go out and buy it. Now, I actually um, come up with seven definitions of the word modern, so we'll be careful using it. Um, but um, in my view, modernism as a theory is an, is an historical theory. If you study history, one of the things you do is you look for differences in different periods, and you identify those different periods by their differences. And so you begin to believe that the only thing that defines the period are those things that are different. And so seeking difference, and of course we know the vocabulary of our time, um, modern and same as contemporary, um, actually becomes a kind of, it becomes a kind of treadmill. And eventually you're going to lose it because um, nothing is completely different. And actually more things are the same. Uh, human relationships, the things that are really important actually don't change hugely over time, frankly. So I just want to put one or two ideas to bed um, from, from, from some, of, some of those comments. But the issue is that in the end, um, you may say that you're not involved with style, but you are, whether you like it or not. Um, uh, and you may say that um, somehow it's, you know, you're, 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 you know, contemporary architecture or whatever, modernist architecture sends a message and other architects on the whole are expected to spot it. Um, anyway, I'll shut up now. That was my response to some of those comments. So I, I could just throw something back. Um, I think what's interesting is that you, I feel like you're appealing to, um, you know, a certain naturalness to architecture and um, whether something is modern or traditional, and I, I feel like there's, there's, is there potentially more at stake in that, these terms and, the way things appear, and what they mean to people could be more, productive, like, one, you know, we don't live in a, period, I think, where there's any predominant style. Therefore, the question of, which style you choose. Um, is something that, uh, as, as, a, as a designer, is, a, is potentially a large part of what one can bring to any commission. And therefore, um, you know, I would kind of argue, can't, can't we raise the stakes? Isn't there something quite uh, powerful about being able to make a building that's in some ways modern, in some ways traditional, or even wholly traditional and wholly modern. I mean, to make a very modernist building now, I would say is quite problematic, but could be very interesting. Um, and so I, I, would, I, would, I would perhaps be um, wanting to uh, move away from uh, this kind of the naturalness of things towards politicizing them, because that can be quite productive and communicative and exciting. But I think I see that as a as a, as a big opportunity. Um, yeah.
the malfunctioning, the malfunctioning microphone. Um, so I'm three Magonis in, and I'm going to say classicism is a lie. Um, and I'm sure Robert will, you know, elegantly dissect my, my arguments. But, you know, classicism, you know, if you go back to antiquity, it wasn't the things that we see today. It was, uh, as we know now, it was very, it was decorative, it was colored. It wasn't this, you know, abstracted stone things that we see. Uh, it was very colorful, it was very, it was almost vulgar. I mean, it was, you know, you know, teeth clenchingly vulgar. And uh, it's passed down through generations, it's part, you know, the, the James Athenian Stuart went and everyone recorded it and took it back and said, yes, it must be like this. And we've had, you know, rules and regulations about, you know, how it should be. Um, so the things that kind of passed down and are seen as, you know, God-given, is not authentic. Whereas I would make the case that modern architecture, modernism, you know, the, is actually kind of authentic. It was looking at new materials, it was true to its time, it was true to its period, it was true to its social ambitions. Uh, it was trying to create better lives for people. It wasn't, uh, you know, uh, that wasn't the boot on the back of people's necks. Uh, it was actually trying to do good, genuine good. It wasn't a received wisdom. And uh, that's, yes, uh, that's, my, that's my point. But, but was, it, was it boring? I'm sure you do, yes. Was it boring? Who thought it was boring? I must be allowed to respond, respond oh. to that. First of all, um, a sort of caricature of classicism. Um, I mean, classicism is something that has continued to evolve and change and vary. It doesn't mean the same thing. It's nothing to do with slaughtering animals in front of temples anymore. Um, meaning changes. It just does. Whether it's a lie or not, I don't know. Um, you know, is you know, is Mies van der Rohe's sort of fake structure on the front of a building a lie or not? I don't really know. Uh, I, 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 I recoil from the idea that architecture is expressing some sort of truth. And I particularly recoil from the idea that any architect is not trying to make people's lives better. Actually, I find that genuinely offensive, actually. Um, but of course, every architect is trying to make people's lives better. And of course, you can do it in various different ways. You can do it in ways um, with w where they identify culturally with what you're doing, or they don't identify culturally with what you're doing. I mean, that's all it is, really. So, you know, you can, you know it's rather like um, uh, deciding that um, something is what it isn't and then criticizing what you've decided it is. I think mine's just, oh no, mine seems to be working. It's not actually a light. I, I was going to just add into that. I think we, we come back to that classicism versus traditionalism, those two words. Can you talk about those? those, those? Classicism is one of, those, one of those traditions. I mean, I'm occasionally branded as a classical architect because I can do that. I know what I'm doing. But I'd, I'd rather call myself a traditional architect. Um, but uh, I, I, frankly, I think attacking classicism is just a red herring. Um, and, and the idea that somehow it's expressing a boot on people's neck, I mean, come on. I mean, you know, uh, I mean, you know the, most of the democratic architecture of the United States is classical. Um, you know, uh, um, so, you know, and... Uh, uh, Sweden was a pioneering welfare state and produced classical architecture. It can be anything you want it to be politically, uh, and it will express it in that way. So I, I think we can just drop that one, frankly. Hello. Um, 
find that very intriguing, <laughs> the sort of back and forth on these um, definitions, classism, traditional, modernist, modernism, contemporary. I think a lot of this is contextual, though, to particular parts of society and particular parts of the world. As soon as you take this conversation outside of where architecture as a profession and industry has been defined, it becomes something totally different. Like the conversation of what traditional architecture is and we could all agree on in the Western context is going to be quite different if you put it anywhere else in the globe. I feel like a lot of the times traditional architecture elsewhere has been erased for so many different reasons, but at its root, most of those were based on their function um, in its purest form. And when we come to the debate of whether traditional architecture um, versus modernist architecture in the and get into the debate around modernist architecture being really about being true to form and function in a way that traditional architecture or classical architecture isn't. That's only true if you put it in a specific place in a specific time. Elsewhere, I don't think that that translates. And I feel like maybe that is part of the wider issue is that when we have these conversations, we typically have them in a very closed sphere of, of thinking and it's really not necessarily looking at the wider chasm of what is architecture and what is it to people. And a lot of the times we're talking about it from a practitioner sense in a very, um, we're all in the same industry and it all means the same, we understand what we're talking about. Um, but the people that consume architecture, the people that experience architecture, modernism, modernist, modern, what, what are you talking about and what does it mean? Does it translate in the same way as we're having this debate? I don't think it does. I think when you get into the conversation of modernism as a, um, as a, a practice with its theory, the layperson isn't going to understand that. Um, and I wonder how this conversation um, ends up yeah, well, how does this end conversation end up going if we bring people, actual people that experience these buildings and live in these spaces? How does that end up translating both here in the UK, in London, in the West, and then elsewhere as well? Just posing a question and wanting to hear other people's voices. Yeah, I, I'm going to come in, Selassie. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and maybe with something that maybe follows up on what you were saying. Um, my mum and dad told me when I was about, well, uh, you know, old enough to um, be told these things that when I was six I wanted to be an architect and I kept saying I wanted to be an architect. And my mum didn't really know what that was. <coughs> we lived in a council estate, she didn't know what architecture was. And to kind of get her to believe in it and know, be supported by her and, and, and do that kind of course and everything, you sort of read about it. And I would often describe to my mum about architecture from that kind of old um, three rules, firmness, commodity, and delight. And um, I didn't get that from Vitruvius or classicism or traditional kind of sources. I got that from reading Le Corbusier. 
And um, <clears throat> in some ways, that period, um, not necessarily the Carbuthies period, but the period of growing up um, in the early 70s was possibly, um, I think, at the end of modernism in some respect. Lay people that I knew at that time didn't understand what modernism was other than the biggest states that they were living in or they were seeing. I was talking to some students today, we were talking about the Barbican and how the Barbican is possibly one of the, 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 the last successes of that modernist and modernism kind of ethos. And with that comes an awful lot of very interesting um, scale, dimension, commodity, firmness, delight, and so on. Now, I think these days, you're right, Selassie, I think in the room, we can talk about architecture in intelligent ways, but at the lay level, and in the context of people um, who are on the street, it's more problematic. And, you know, I think there is dangers where um, there is a kind of use of language or a use of style to win over a kind of general public that aren't necessarily trained to think or educated to understand that commodity might be more than just the utility and the value. It, you know, um, uh, firmness might be more than just the structure and the strength of and the longevity, and delight is much more than just the aesthetics and the style. And I think one of the problems that we might face is, is in this society is that lack of discussion at the lay level. Um, and also um, at the kind of um, almost populist cultural level that, um, you know, that aspect of architecture is not really fully understood or explained. Is, is anyone else imagining six-year-old Steve reading Corbusier? Because <laughs> I've, that's, that's in my brain now. I think, I think, I mean, Steve is triggering the general audience participation, if anyone has a burning thing they want to add. Yes, Jason, you got in there first. Uh, thank you. Sorry. Uh, how say, a picture of hands. Who here has taken a picture of a bad detail, or who has liked a picture that Ollie Wainwright has taken of a bad detail? There's quite a few hands, quite a few hands. Yeah, have you taken a picture? Yeah, I thought, oh, I thought you might have. Bad details, bad details, bad details, they're pretty good to look at because, you know, it's kind of something's gone wrong and architects like to take pictures of bad details because they think, oh, bloody contractors, bloody builders, don't have to build my fucking building, I've drawn the detail, can't you build it? And the contractors say, well, you know, how do you expect me to build this physically impossible thing you've drawn? And then they have a go at the architects and they hate, we hate each other. But what the classicists did, if you go back in time, you know, getting something right is really hard. It's actually quite expensive to you know, have a really trained builder get something flush, clean, spot on, bang on. There's a lot of words for getting something just right, particularly in building. And what details, what flourishes, architectural flourishes, cornices, corner details, what they do is they cover up these messy details, the fact that architecture is so often imperfect. So maybe it's quite nice to, to see this corner detail, to see something beautiful covering up what is sometimes quite a ghastly mess, so ghastly that the Guardian architecture critic takes a picture of it to laugh at and we all laugh with him. So maybe it makes us feel a bit better. And maybe, you know, Mies van der Rohe, the big modernist that we all, well, modernists love, um, he kind of cottoned onto that as well. He was putting fake tectonic details onto, you know, the Seagram building to make 
people think that architecture was perfect. Really, it wasn't. Um, so I just wanted to touch on that and also bring into the idea that, you know, something that there's a reason why we like to see details be right and be perfect. That's because as people within the built environment, we like to see how a building was built. They, we espouse the fact that apparently seeing how a building was built, how it stands up, makes us feel better. We, we feel secure in the fact that we can see this detail working and the fact that the tectonics of a building are actually going to work. So there are two sides. And the, the, what Rainer Bannon was once saying was that getting a building right and spot on was, was expensive. You have to train a really, you know, really good builder to get that right. And I know, Robert Adam, you were keen to put to bed the idea that it's expensive, but I wanted to just maybe wake that idea up a bit. So I hope that's sparked something. It can be cheap. <laughs> <coughs> I, I take you back to building Swedish buildings. I suggest you look at them, 1920s. Really basic rendered buildings still standing. <coughs> but I just want to go on the fact I got the microphone. I can't stop myself. <coughs> The reason I prefer to stick with traditional architecture because traditions do vary country to country and culture to culture. That's why I prefer it. I mean, classical architecture is a Western tradition um, which comes in various forms. I won't go into it too much. Um, but traditions do vary. I mean, a, a Chinese traditional architecture pays a lot of attention to the roof, for example, which we genuinely don't. Um, but they all mean something. And the other one I think is really important in this particular context. And I rather worry about the idea that the way to get um, people to, 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 to like it is to go away and educate them. Perhaps actually architects ought to educate themselves about ordinary people to contrast the other way around. Um, uh, you know, we, we're, we're a hothouse in here, probably literally, actually. Um, we're a hothouse in here of, of, of theory and so on and so on. But why should ordinary people really care about all this stuff? Uh, well, they want, to, they want something with which they're comfortable, and does the right job, and so on and so on. That's all of our jobs, isn't it, in the end? Uh, no, it doesn't mean it's got to be theoryless. It doesn't mean it's got to be intellectually starved, because actually uh, the, most, the, the best novel, the best story, also has intellectual depth. So uh, I, I just want to make a plea for people who don't need to be educated to think like architects. Architects need to be educated to think like people. Uh, I just wanted to come quickly in on, on that idea. I've got a microphone, thank you. Um, so when classicism arrived in Britain in the 17th century in various guises, uh, it wasn't universally popular. It wasn't universally publicly approved of. And Christopher Wren, uh, Royal Surveyor, was frustrated by the thing that he knew the, the style that he knew to be perfect, to be the truest uh, sort of um, expression of divine geometry and of ancient wisdom, um, that people didn't like his centrally planned dome design for St. Paul's because it broke with tradition, because it broke with what people expected their buildings to be like. And so uh, he was, got so frustrated with this that he coined an idea of customary beauty as opposed to natural beauty. And he said, customary beauty, i.e. Gothic cathedrals, is begotten by the use of our senses to those objects which are usually pleasing to us for other causes, as familiarity or particular inclination breeds a love to things not in themselves lovely. Not in themselves lovely is what Christopher Wren thought about a lot of Gothic medieval buildings that preceded him. And so what, what I want to unpack a little bit is 
why, why Robert, you think that the claim that you make to classicism, uh, to classicism's sort of commonsensical, popular uh, appeal, why when we look at the emergence of classicism as an architectural mode and as a style in lots of historical contexts, it wasn't universally appealed, there wasn't, it didn't have that universal appeal that you claim it has, and in, in that context, could the same thing not happen to modernism as happened to classicism? Yes, it could, of course. I mean, the, the, the issue is that there wasn't a really a thing called the public in the 17th century in the sense that we know it. That, that idea of the public really emerged in the 19th century. I don't think anyone did an opinion poll um, uh, with Christopher Wren. Um, actually, society was run by aristocrats, and the people he was talking about uh, were not what I would loosely call the public. But, yeah, things change, sure. I mean, you know, maybe, maybe they will change to, uh, to, 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 to modernism. Um, but actually, that's taking a rather rigid view. Things, things do change. And if they change, and that's what people want, then we should do it. I have nothing more complicated about it than that. It just is that right at this particular moment, we know, because there's endless surveys that demonstrate this, that broadly speaking, ordinary people prefer, let's call it traditional architecture. I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going to dwell on classical architecture anymore. I think it's a red herring. Uh, traditional architecture. Survey after survey after survey demonstrates this. It doesn't mean it can't change. It doesn't mean they won't change. Um, but right now, that's the way it is. And the reason it is, is that basically all of our identity, to some extent, is based on our past. There's nothing else we've got. There's no future. It doesn't exist. We've only got our past. And all people's identity, to some extent, relies on their past. But of course it'll change. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say it's forever and ever. It just so happens I'm in a position where I know that I'm producing stuff um, in various different forms um, that is, broadly speaking, popular. I don't use popular as a dirty word. Um, I'd just like to posit the idea to the room, generally, that who, who, people who aren't architects, who, pardon my French, who gives a fuck what architects think, um, and who, of the, of, of the public, and of people who actually use these civic schemes and these public schemes, sort of for going, to make, you know, to make my argument, for going private houses, for instance, with social housing of the 1920s in Sweden, I assume Robert is referring to of, of people like um, Sigurd Liverance and Gunnar Asplund. Gunnar Asplund, for instance, became one of the key figures of modernism in, in the 20th century. But I think my point is, and what you just said, Robert, about you know, we, we don't have a future. We also, we have a past, but we don't live in it. And it's important, I think, not to be nostalgic, nor as architects often like to be sort of very very concerned with some new theory that will solve everything, the idiocy of parametricism, for instance, in Patrick Schumacher. I don't think there is one, I don't think anyone in here really thinks there's one right way to do things, but there is in fact an intricacy that exists, as the architect John Mounier puts it, there is an intricacy that exists between styles, as much as I have an issue with styles, because it's a matter of taste and does the does the population really care what one architect thinks versus another? They don't. They care about how to use the building and how effective that building is at achieving its function. And so does it really matter that something looks a particular way and we, you know, an architect likes it and another one doesn't? Does the person using that community center really care? Probably not, no. 
I, I, I do think that every time the public are invoked, there's a suggestion that they only care about function. I just don't think that's true. I think everyone is entitled to read into a visual culture content. That doesn't mean that they read in the same thing, but I definitely think there is a skill to creating buildings that produce content in the minds of people that use them. And that is a skill, and I think the kind of damning of architects, because they don't know the, the, the thoughts of the, you know, the public, I think is to slightly make it unnecessarily adversarial. Everyone enjoys the world around them in different ways. And surely there's an opportunity to make work that accesses that faculty. And the question is not then um, which style or whatever, but it's just having some the kind of sensitivity to that kind of sense of reception. Um, yeah. If, if I, I could, oh, could I just quickly, it's coming in. Could I just quickly respond to that? Uh, I, ju I just want to cheer that. No, you can't <laughs> respond right now. We we'll just do Nick and just then. Hang on a sec. I, I mean, I just want to. I think it's very. Odd. Why can't we use the word beauty? I mean, you all seem to be shy of this word. Oh, you said the B word. The B word. What's the shy? And you know, people. It's something people care about. And I think you're absolutely right to pick on the fact that there are people very skilled in producing this, which they couldn't produce themselves. Why not call some of these people architects? Um, the, be the beauty factor is enormously important. People shy away from it. Um, but they, they shouldn't. Um, just to pick up on something uh, Robert said, I mean, I think about the public, I I'm, not, I'm not sure there may be some Brazilians here, but I, I gather that in Brazil, Niemeyer and other people like that are enormously popular now. Why is that? Why is Niemeyer so popular, unlike sort of British brutalism, which is less popular? Um, because he makes such beautiful buildings and people, the, the public care about that, totally agree, as well as these other more mundane functional things. Um, so that's a crucial part of the architect's skill and is very much appreciated of whichever genre people are designing and building in. Sorry, did you want to have your right to reply? Apologies. Uh, yeah, no, I think I, I'm, I'm in agreement with what you're saying, David. Um, and I, as, as a student myself, I find phenomenology and that kind of experience of buildings deeply fascinating and I find formalism quite tiring because formalism for me is looking at something and that's about it. Whereas if, for instance, you take um, St. Peter's Church and Kiplan, Secret Deliverance, you, you, you go there and you, you experience that building and you're not quite sure why you feel a certain way but you feel it. And that is the skill of, I am by no means undermining the skill of architects and the profession which I'm training in. I'm by no means undermining that. I am simply stating that I think it would be healthier as a profession and as Palladio's coming back from the dead. Um, it, it would be healthier for us as a profession to take a slightly wider view as to what is generally appreciated and not just something that is buried in theory, which phenomenology I'm well aware can become buried in theory but at the same time it's also very intim intimidating looking through publications of classical architecture and seeing um, 
detailed breakdowns of mathematical proportions, which, which is it, uh, both of which are very alienating. The sort of natural forms and spiritual uh, guidance that we get from classicism and traditional architecture, apparently, as well as the kind of the, the deeply theoretical side of phenomenology, are both very alienating. So I suppose what I'm trying to say is there must be some sort of via media that I think was, as was mentioned earlier, is on a kind of spectrum of beauty. So, yeah, we're not. No, we haven't had many people talk about materials, and I wonder if there was anyone in the room who would like to comment on. On, are you not a stonemason? So I just wonder if, you know, timelessness, is that inherent to materials? Well, I crush you all under the, might, the mighty stone uh, from, from, <laughs> from Stone Age to, uh, to now. Um, and I look at uh, all the production uh, of architecture since 6,000 years. And I, I, I think, f first of all, the... It's it's really um, it's I, I, when I when I, when I think about traditional architecture and and, and and modern architecture, I strangely enough, as a stonemason, I I, I really love uh, brutalism. Uh, I, I really love the expression of, of the of the materials through uh, through the, those proportion. But um, I, I think there is much more things that that bring back that bring together especially nowadays, traditional architecture with modern architecture because of material, very much about that. It's, I think there is a, a, a feel of interest now from uh, modern architecture in knowing more about material and how, they, how material are, are processed, uh, what's behind the material, what's behind a brick, what's behind a concrete, what's behind iron. Um, and I, I think... Um, uh, I, I think that these interests suddenly bring the modern architecture in modern architect in in learning a lot more about uh, about that architecture is not about space, or not just about space, but how you are making this space and what sort of material you are making those space. Uh, sorry, I'm a bit. Uh, I was a bit. <laughs> I was not expecting to talk, uh, which is very rare for a Frenchman. Um, so, um, so, so. I, and and I, I think that's why, strangely enough, I think we are arriving at a point nowadays where modern architecture has very much, as you say, become a sort of traditional architecture nowadays. Uh, you know, it's recognized as a sort of now uh, not so modern after all. Um, but I think it's just a, a, an interesting inches of history in architecture where we are going to have these two worlds collide in a much more... Um, uh, progressist and much more forward-thinking uh, of, of bringing material materiality in, in modern building a lot more than than what we used to be and I think then that we are going to reconnect us to reconnect all of us people who are using buildings in a less alienating, alienating ways um, and I think that something we forget uh, about material and about uh, modern verse uh, modern versus traditional, uh, whatever, or either, um, is, is the economy 
the economy of things also. You know, it's, it's, you cannot take just architecture on its own saying, uh, oh, let's look at architecture now. No, architecture, there is people buying architecture. There are people buying lands. There are people who want to make more money on their lands. So they make more fancy, they may make higher buildings with more constraints. So it's, it's a much more than, than that. And uh, it, it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's ex exciting time to be, to be a student in architecture, just to have all these new things coming at this at this moment in time, uh, and um, uh, and yes, no, I, I uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm a bit uh, yes, uh, sorry. Um, so, anyone want to answer that? If, if anyone was wondering how I knew Pierre was a stonemason, he's wearing a Stonehenge jumper. Yes, so. yes, sorry, yeah, I, uh, that was a bit of a giveaway. Um, sorry, Salati. Oh, you might have to turn it on. Slide up. Oh. <laughs> My first comment was going to be about how I like, I really like your Stonehenge jumper. <laughs> um, yeah, I was wondering if anybody was going to get into the conversation of materiality um, and where current discourse around things like sustainability um, come into play when we're talking about traditional versus modernism, modern, modernist, um, come into play. And I think materiality is one of the things that are, is quite key to that conversation. And I think this is the reason why I said in the very beginning about it being on a sliding scale, because I think we're at a point now where we're going to be doing some of that thinking that the more traditional um, builders and designers were in being a lot more considerate about materiality in the way that maybe the modernists weren't really doing um, in maybe they were concerned with how much of a cantilever can I produce because I'm using this innovative engineered material. Whereas I think now it's going to be more of how can I engineer a material so that it's the most sustainable um, and mixing that in with ideas of where material is sourced, which is very um, key to where I would say more traditional practices um, were kind of concerned with. Um, and I think that takes us into a whole different sphere of what we end up with in terms of how we would define, like I said before, how would we define modern architecture in 200 years when modernism or modern architecture at that time would now be more traditional. I think it, there'll be different definitions and there'll be different drivers and whether it's materiality or whether it's decoration or whether it's theory or whatever and you know mathematical um, approaches to symmetry or beauty or whatever it is I think all of these things are on a sliding scale and they'll be informed by a, a point in time where we have different um, um, I guess drivers and that's one thing aside and I think hello on the conversation of um, people in this context so I work for be first and we're a wholly owned um, developer owned by the local authority of Barclay and Dagenham. So inevitably, engaging with local people is a major part of what we're doing. And from experience dealing closely with ward councillors and polit local politicians and residents, it's quite evident that this thing of beauty style is very important to people. And 
for example, in a, in a, in a place where they're used to, say, low-rise buildings, um, two, three stories, maybe more tr traditional in in terrace buildings, trying to make a development viable in a situation like that where you're going to have to consider more density. Imagine trying to have a conversation with local residents where ballots are now involved and all these kind of other things are at play, which I think is very important um, in terms of how we develop going forward. We need to be able to bring people in a better understanding of what architecture is beyond um, traditional, uh, the conversation of traditional modernists because where we are in society just demands it. Um, and yeah, I think it's very important that we, as architects, don't isolate ourselves from that very sort of people-centered um, conversation. Uh, but yeah. I mean, going back to that, um local materials, local culture, heritage. I just never understood why Stonehenge, why the stones had to come from so far away. Because they really had to carry them across the bridge, didn't they? Symbolic. I was just going to pass on to Daryl. Oh, sorry. I wasn't going to do the material thing. Is that okay, Rob? Okay. Um, so I'm a simple man. So I'm going to just try this out. So apologies. But um, Duke Ellington once said there are two types of music, good music and bad music. So, may I propose this good architecture and bad architecture? That's problematic, I know. But, but my point is that goodness can cut across both modern and trad. And that therefore, Robert, I take slight issue when you start to draw up the lines saying things like, well, will the public like traditional and, and not modern? Conveniently, the microphone is the next thing. Um, yes, I agree with you completely. Um, there's good and bad, it not, not to do with style, it's a question of how well it's done um, um, by who does it. I, 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 I agree with that completely. Are we friends again? No, 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 I, I didn't think we're anything else. Um, you know, uh, and um, uh, so I, I, I'll, I'll make this point briefly and I'll get to materials, which I think is a very important point we, we don't want to drop, um, is that I personally believe that what I call root and branch classical traditionalism is a dead end. Um, uh, it must evolve and continue to evolve, and it evolves for good reasons. And I think that it has something to learn from the history of modernism, much as the history of modernism has something to learn from the history of traditional architecture. I believe that absolutely. I think being oppositional about it is a mistake. Um, and but however, even some of this discussion we've had today has been oppositional. I think it's a mistake. On the issue of materials, this is, this is a big one, actually. Uh, longevity is a big one. The famous Carl Elefante, the greenest building is the one that's already there. So if the greenest building is the one that's already there, the greenest building in the future is the one that we build that will last longest. Um, and um, transport of materials comes in. This is quite problematic, actually, because we don't live in... Uh, a lot of the stone, stone quarries which people use have now been turned into nature reserves because they're full of bats. You know, so there are all kinds of problems with this. But this is terribly important. This cuts across any of, any of this. Uh, one of the problems and this is just a trope, this is a sort of modernist trope, is the glass trope. You know, uh, I, I had a, um, a developer, a client of mine, who said, well, if I want to win an architectural award, what I do is I build a building that looks like a shoebox and cover it in glass, and I'll guarantee you I'll get an architectural award. I mean, he was being cynical, but there's a certain degree of truth in this. Actually, what really, when we actually get to it, buildings that, um, that are built, built of materials that last a long time, in a, in a way that is flexible and can be used 
in a number of different ways, because if they're going to last for 200 years, who knows what they're going to be used for. This is really important. It tends towards the traditional, but only if you regard traditional as meaning traditional materials. I think this cuts across all of it, actually. I did a very interesting piece of research a number of years ago with Atelier 10, where we produced two theoretical buildings, um, identical buildings, identical form. One had um, massive walls and, and holes in them called windows. Uh, another one had two walls of triple glazed, argon filled, solar controlled glass. The one with the massive walls and the holes in it performed better in every single building type. Um, uh, even um, Patrick Bellew was surprised at that and how clear cut that was. That's nothing to do with style, that's just to do with how you build something in a sustainable way. Now I'm all warmed up now. Um, so, um, you, you articulate very well what I was trying to badly say about sustainability and how we can bring modern and traditional together through material. And I think that that's clear that suddenly the interest in sustainability from the modern architect is key. However, the thing is, if you've got, because again it's about economy. Um, if you've, if you, <laughs> concrete is a cheap material. It's fucking cheap, okay? The cheaper it is, the more you want to put. The more you want to put, the heavier your structure are, okay? When concrete was not expensive, when it was spare, when it was nervy using, nervy using it, they were the beautiful and the lightest concrete structure you can ever think about. Because the material was expensive, because energy was expensive. Let's stop thinking about materi material being cheap. Nothing is cheap, everything should be sacred. Anything we get out of the ground, how we grow, should be sacred. I, I'm not, you know, I'm a freaking Republican, so as French Republican, I, I don't give a toss about anything about religious. But we've got to get this consideration of our environment and the, the way we got stuff out of the ground and whatever get out of the ground, we should make it the most, we should make the most out of it. And I think that modern architect, modern architect, contemporary architect, start to, I mean, realize that now, they can see it, um, they, can, they, they don't specially want to be sold any more concrete or any more glass. Uh, I, I think there is a, a stop to that. But I'm sorry to say, it's still too cheap. All this concrete is way too cheap. The steel is too cheap. And the, 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 you know, the cheaper it is, then the, yeah, the more we are going to use. Um, we, we, we need to put a real price on, on, on cost of things. Um, then, then, then the architecture will we'll get better and improve if we've got more constraints. Uh, uh, you know, we, we've got some beautiful, cath I, mean, I, 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 I hate using the freaking cathedral example again, but they are the lightest structure you can do in stone because it, it, was, it, it was very hard to bring heavy material at the top, so they, they, they were the most exquisite structure you could, you could get like Nervi was going to do, you know, 600 years later using concrete. It's, 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 it's all about a clear understanding on all trades from engineer, architect to makers and to speak to each other in a happy world. <laughs> Sorry to be, uh, but um, yeah, I, I think we need just to be a lot more careful in, in the way we use material. And I think it's, it's coming back now with architect uh, looking into, into much, much, much depth. Before, before, we, before we get to Steve, sorry, I just, wanted to, I, just, I just wanted to talk about one thing, then we'll come back to you, maybe. But um, uh, just this idea of uh, the uh, 
greenest building is one that's already built. Let's not um, waste buildings. We've got this 20th century society in the room. So I just think we should, maybe we should touch upon that idea of why are so many modernist buildings being wantonly destroyed? Is that not maybe a, a great concern? And Steve's going to touch upon that point. Yeah, and I'll try and be brief. Um, I disagree with all those things you're talking about, about stone. Um, I do agree with Robert a little bit about the glass aspect, but after seeing a lecture by Wolf Mangelsdorf, who did all the structural engineering for Zaha and various others, um, he did this wonderful lecture during the summer about sustainable materials, and he, he basically um, poo-pooed the myth of stone, because it contains so much steel in the way we use stone these days, in terms of supporting and reinforcing. I also poo-pooed the idea of the use of timber in buildings because ultimately you can't uh, recycle that. You end up burning the waste product. So the movements and the technical expertise in concrete is where it's interesting because there's economies of scale and there's um, um, new techniques and, and so forth. And when we think about um, the likes of the Marks and Spencer's building that was um, saved from demolition. And you've got the Museum of London and Bastion House in the Barbican protected by the 20th Century Society. You've got one building that is good. It's quality, it makes us think culturally. And the other building is a kind of representation of big floor space which is hard to heat and hard to look after. And in some ways, the, the concreteness and the glassness of Bastion House and the Museum of London has trouble getting public support. So I would ask the 20th Century Society to sort of add on to that, perhaps, um, as a kind of yeah. <laughs> case I mean, study. I think certainly we've been arguing that the, it's not just the cultural value of buildings that makes them um, is the imperative for saving them, but the environmental impact. We've been arguing that for the last 20, 25 years. And I think one of the really interesting things at the moment is that a huge amount of the advice about how to actually make our existing building stock perform better assumes that we're talking about traditional buildings, whereas a huge amount of the building stock we have is actually modernist buildings and looking at how those can be made to be more environmentally sufficient, efficient is incredibly important and something that we're really pushing for very hard. Um, and I mean, I, I thought perhaps just to sort of pull us in a slightly different def, di, um, direction, one of the things that I'm really most looking forward to coming up architecturally this year is the, the V&A's exhibition on tropical modernism, you know, which comes out of the show that was at the Venice Biennale last year. And I think that's a really interesting um, exhibition because it is looking at buildings that are both um, really from the mainstream canon of modernism, but buildings that actually went back and looked at traditional building um, techniques, materials, forms, um, as a response to climate. And that, you know, that maybe that that's a, great, a, a, a jumping off point for a real fusion of um, looking at the, 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 the best bits that both modernism and tradition can give us to, to, to draw on going forward. Um, well, I don't know, we're um, running a bit out of time, but maybe people could pick up on that point 
with the sort of closing remarks? Would that be okay? And Catherine? concrete is a beautiful, beautiful, highly crafted material in, in its post-war manifestation, and I could talk for hours. <laughs> should we? Should we go to? The, oh, oh, do, no. Yeah. I, I guess it's it's a comment. It, it's it's going on from your point that that quality sort of transcends both of these. Uh, you know this dichotomy that we've we've kind of put in place, and and to your point, you know, it, yeah, we should be aspirational across all aspects in the most holistic and broad way possible uh, from from a sustainability point of view, um, fundamentally, um, and and I believe very firmly that that will transcend this sort of um, yeah these 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 polarized ideas of, of what's good and bad, and we yeah. We need, we need both architects, but also the dwellers of these buildings to be aspirational in what they're asking for. Um, yeah, it's a, a We need more thought. women to speak from the floor. You're the first woman who's <laughs> spoken. I think that's shocking. <laughs> oh, we've got another woman. <laughs> women. I'll try and do this. Um, what I just keep thinking all the way through this is, what generates form? What generates the way buildings look? And I'm wondering whether what everyone's reaching for in this room is some kind of authenticity. What's unique and special about now and what expresses now? And I think that's the problem people have with traditional architecture. And I, I can't, that's the wrong word, is that it somehow reaches back for something and it doesn't say what is now. And I was thinking, I'll do this really quickly. There are probably six things I can think of which generate building form. You know, function, obviously. Culture and history, very important technical you know you can do absolutely anything with any material now when you're building a georgian window you can only span a certain distance and that's why georgian windows are the proportion they are you can literally do anything now so it makes anything possible which is really difficult um sustainability everyone's been talking about it you can do there are definitely new forms details etc that are arising from this very very contemporary problem building skills rubbish now totally impoverished all of the sort of subcontractors out there, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them are struggling to do a single simple detail. And that massively constrains what architects can design. And finally, economics. The sheer real estate juggernaut creates forms which are new to now. And so whilst we might not like the real estate juggernaut and what it produces, that is what, it's very contemporary and it's very authentic in a way. So I'd like us to think about what is authentic to now, and that is surely sort of what we should be aiming for. Yes, um, uh, I think um, that was, uh, I mean, that's a very good concluding point, but I think, shall we go back to the speakers and get them to... Uh, Robert's poise, so you, you can go first. First of all, authenticity is, is, is unavoidable. Um, if you do it now, it's done now, it's of now, it is now. That's the end of the story. Authenticity is a chimera. Just don't bother. Just don't bother about it. Um, uh, but I think, uh, on, a, on a slightly more positive point than contradicting somebody, um, I, I personally think it is an interesting time. When I when I when I began becoming interested in traditional architecture, basically they were going to fail me at architecture school. It's very simple. They were going to fail me. Um, I had students coming through my office. Uh, and, and the horror stories uh, in architecture schools was absolutely staggering. Some were taken aside and said, go into conservation or we'll fail you. Um, uh, I had one who was refused to enter a course because he'd worked with me. I mean, really, really, really shocking. 
And I think now things are a lot better. I mean, the fact we're having this debate, the fact that, uh, and I think that the fag end of this pointless polarization hopefully is just going away. We live in a very diverse time. We can do diverse things. We all care about how people live. We all, we all care about how people perceive things. Um, and I think, you know, if any of us don't think that, could they please leave the room? They shouldn't be architects. And so the idea that any of us don't care about that is simply, simply wrong. Um, and how we do it in different ways, and we can experiment with different ways. Um, and I think for architecture students now, um, the opportunities are much, much greater. There is much more diversity out there. There's much more tolerance out there. So can we just all be tolerant of one another and understand that good architecture is produced by good architects who care about what they're doing? Uh, that's it. Well, that's all very touching. Um, <laughs> and I'm sorry that Robert had such a struggle in his early years, and I'm sorry that people were marginalized for their trad beliefs. Um, but, and yes, it's a broad church, and you know, in C20, we are a broad church. But I think, you know, somebody mentioned the B word, uh, the beauty word, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, traditional architecture still holds a unrealistic, well, uh, rather a grip on political imagination, shall we say. Um, the Tory government have drunk the Roger Scruton Kool-Aid and the results are there for everybody to see. Um, you know, traditional architecture is, you know, the, it, it, it's, <laughs> the building better building beautiful campaign um and modernism is seen you know modern architecture anything contemporary is seen as the devil and yes of course that's dreadful the polarization but that does mean that you know it has uh, outcomes for political conversations social conversations architectural conversations and it's it's tricky because what kind of you know how should we build how will we build how should we build I think going forward, architecture is going to be a great deal more boring because uh, sustainability, you know, is going to be the paramount thing. Uh, we're not going to be building classical architecture with, you know, 14-foot high ceilings. We're not going to build modern architecture with glass skins. Uh, a new kind of consensus is going to be required. Um, but nonetheless, I think that we have to, you know, kind of unpick what trad architecture means. And yes, it has lessons going forward, uh, and so has modernism. So I suppose that's a very sort of consensual note on which to end. Um, there's too much to say. Um, okay, on, 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 I feel like I should touch on the point around um, architecture being built by architects and everybody, all architects care about architecture and if nobody agrees then they should exit the room. I mean, not all architecture is designed and executed and delivered by architects. That's part of our problem at the moment, isn't it? Um, and that's, yeah, part of the points that were being made. Um, I think it would be great if everybody cared um, enough about who's going to use the buildings and put that forward in the for forefront. But it just isn't the case. There's a lot of people who are concerned about their bottom line. And like was described, the real estate juggernaut is really, really a big juggernaut that kind of controls everything. So unfortunately, we as architects aren't dictators of how, what architecture gets produced. We're part of it, but we're not wholly um, at the forefront of it. Um, that's the side. Um, 
yeah, I think I want to pick up on the tropical modernism thing. It was a fantastic exhibition, and I think it's a, an amazing thing that um, it's it's going to be at the V&A. Um, and I think the idea of of sustainability being a driving force that defines what architecture is going to look like going forward might, in some regard, in the first instance, produce some boring architecture. But I feel like that's when the architects step in, and that's our space to innovate and to create a new, um, a new time in architecture um, to explore what beauty means when we put sustainability first and we put um, um, our environment first, um, and yeah, and people's and how people use the space. I guess bring in a new sense of what it is to live and use space in a way that is more sustainable. I think there's room for us to help define what that looks like in an innovative way and bring joy and excitement and beauty into what that looks like. Won't look like classicism, won't look like modernism or modernist architecture. It will look like something different. And I think that's the space for us to yeah, innovate and create something new. Um, yeah, like I said, a lot more to say, but I'll just stop there. Perhaps the best traditional and modern architecture is about those three things. Then you enjoy delight and whatever your third one was. Sorry. Um, so I listening to everyone's comments made me think that um, I, I'm assuming many people here are architects or work um, in a, you know, some way with architects. And I think we shouldn't be too ashamed to lobby very hard for architects to have yet more say and more time, because I think um, maybe there is greater continuity in what the future holds, uh, in that I would entirely agree that it doesn't, it, it's only boring if um, we don't invest the time in design uh, to really think about what's possible. Um, and also, a lot of these questions around material are perennial questions. They're just different materials in the future, potentially. And so I would say, we, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to lobby for our um, opportunity, and that means time, which means money, uh, to have our say. Because I do, I do think that sometimes the, the conversation always seems to be that some architects, I feel, should be, have, have less of a say. Or, and some, you know, give it to somebody else. But I think that, you know, from what I'm hearing, there's lots that architects have to contribute uh, in what comes next. Great. Well, I'm a, not an architect, so I'm sort of glad in a way because um, it's it's so complicated. I mean, there's so many different factors in a building. You can't talk about architecture as this one thing. It's always at least 20 things. And once you've got, suppose it's even four things. Suppose architecture is four things. Then there's 10 different ways those four things can combine if you think about all the permutations. So it's just horrendously complicated. And your job is hell because you have to kind of, you're always in a dilemma. Your life is like an ongoing Greek tragedy. There's nothing you can't do the right thing because you've always, you've got to sacrifice one thing to others. Um, but all I just want to say is in the middle of your Greek tragedy, which is your everyday life uh, as a designer, um, just, uh, just keep the B word in mind. That's all I'd like to say.
Well, th I think we're going to wrap up there. Um, but before we go, there'll be a few words from our sponsors. Um, but uh, first of all, I just want to say uh, I think we should all congratulate everyone who took part in this debate and you all for listening. And to our partners at the 20th Century Society. Lovely. Uh, thanks ever so much for inviting us. It's been fabulous. It's a really lovely atmosphere and it's great to see so many people so passionate and involved in the discussion. Um, I've been offered the opportunity for a bit of blatant publicity. So just to say that 20th Century Society, we passionately care about both modern and traditional buildings and we campaign to keep the best for all the best reasons. Um, and to make sure that they're there to really inspire the best architecture of tomorrow. Um, and if you're not a member, we'd love to have you be one, and please check out our website and think about it. So um, thank you to, to everyone for coming, and for a lovely, lovely venue. And before you go... Yes, final word from me. Um, I just want to say the next uh, Negroni talk is on the 20th of February on safety and fear in the city. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to say um, thanks very much to Mitch and the guys. Mitch, I overlooked the fact horrendously at the beginning. I forgot to introduce him. Mitch is actually the co-owner of this place with uh, Pal and Steve, so it's uh, his uh, his home turf, as it were. So thanks, Mitch, and uh, thanks to the guys as well for helping us out again. Um, and yeah, hope to see you at another Negroni talk in the near future. Cheers. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.forthspace.co.uk, where you can see all our past and upcoming events, or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.